I'm going to have Angie come up and read our scripture reading for this evening. Our scripture reading tonight is Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from that... And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the fort of Jabuk. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, for I have seen the face of I have seen God face to face and said, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penel. Limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh.
right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Uh, Father God, we thank you uh, for... um, God, all your provision and all your daily blessings in our lives. God, we thank you for uh, the rain that we've had. Uh, we recognize that that rain is is good and necessary, that it will be um, um, the water that, that um, feeds uh, our crops um, uh, in the springtime. And yet at the same time, there are um, many um, homes and, and families who have had... Um, uh, destruction and flooding and stuff because of the uh, um, because of the rain. God, we pray for your provision in those situations that you would take care of those people and um, uh, work to get them back to a normal um, place of life um, quickly. Uh, God, we um, God we recognize in in nature and in stories like this that um, God, you are a God who is bigger than we are. Um, you are a God who is. Um, powerful and mysterious, and um, you are constantly working, and you are constantly um, moving and um, working in our lives, um, working in the circumstances of our lives. God, help us to see those things. Um, Help us to um, take notice and to care and to um, be ready um, when you move um, so that we would know and hear and be and see um, and have all the things that you would have for us. Um, God, help us to make the same decisions that we are going to see Jacob make in this passage. Um, Help us depend on you in all things. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, So... Um, I, we come to what I think is the climax of this story. We've been in the, the narrative of Jacob for about seven or eight weeks now. Um, and we come to what, again, I think is the climax of this story. It is the moment that God has been working Jacob to the entire time. It's a moment of transformation. And I think it's even a moment of conversion in Jacob's life. Um, like many conversion stories, um, it comes at the point of crisis. Um, we, uh, it's a place where we are confronted with the realities of who God is and the realities of, of our own lives. Jacob has left Laban, his father-in-law. He has left the land of Haran. Um, and although Laban pursued Jacob, probably with the intent to do him harm and to take back the things that Jacob had left with, God was gracious. And God protected Jacob. And a, a treaty was struck between them. And Jacob is, is promises not to go back to Haran, right? He promises that he will leave that place and head towards the promised land. And so you can imagine almost this picture. It's like he, there's no turning back now for, for Jacob in this journey. He has, he has taken the white shoe polish and he's, and he's marked on the back of his, his wagons, promised land or bust, right? We are heading this way and there's, there's no going back at this point. So as Jacob heads west, Um, He comes to this river called the Jabbok River. Jabbok is one of the tributaries that runs into the Jordan. All right. And so it marks at certain times in in Israel, the history of Israel, it marks the promised land. Right. It is it is one extension of the the limits of the promised land. Hundreds of years later, when Moses um, leads the people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, they come into the promised land and they start to spread out. The Jabbok actually ends up being. Being the extent of where they they go to. Okay, now they they were promised land even past that, but they never take control of it. The Jabbok ends up being the de facto dividing line between the, the land of the east 
and the promised land. So in a way, you could say the Jabbok for Jacob is his Rubicon, right? It is his river that he crosses, and at that point, there's no turning back now. But he hasn't crossed it yet in the story. He gets to the edge of this river, and it says in verse chapter 1, uh, verse chapter 32, verse 1, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Now, it's interesting because that, that little that, that reference that the angels meet him is almost just passed over. Like it's one little line, and then he just keeps on going. And you sort of wonder, why was that even included in the passage? Well, consider the picture that is being painted for the reader, right? Consider what the picture that is being painted by the writer of Genesis, right? When Jacob was leaving the promised land, running for his life, he encountered angels at Bethel, right? When he got to Bethel, that was when he saw the stairway that led up to heaven and, and he saw the angels ascending and descending on it. Now, re-entering the promised land, he encounters these angels again, although in a little different fashion. Almost as if the armies of God are guarding the promised land, right? As he enters into it and as he leaves it, he encounters the armies of God there, coming from heaven, going to heaven, um, depicting God's control and protection and providence over this land. And so just as Bethel was the house of God, right? It was the stairway of God there. This is the camp of God, okay? And he sees these, these angels, these myriad number of angels there um, at, at uh, Mahanaim. But there's also some tension, and we don't exactly see it unless you know some of the, the language of the Hebrew. But commentators point out that that word met, the angels met him there, met implies threatening. All right? It is a word that, that uh, means it's not necessarily like, a, hey, buddy, come on in, we got a party for you, right? It's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of tension in the meeting of these angels. Now, in the text, we don't seem to see that, that Jacob is afraid of them. It doesn't say he was, he was scared of them or anything. They don't seem to be showing him um, trying to, to, to hurt him or anything like that. Um, but it may be pointing to an idea of this, that the, Jacob, uh, the angels are there to basically be a warning to Jacob. Right. Jacob's greatest fear is just out in front of him. And that is Esau. All right. The thing that he has been running from and hiding from essentially for 20 years, he is about to meet again. And he has no idea how that is going to go. And so the angel's presence, I think, and that 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 word met in the Hebrew um, is a reminder both of God's protection that the angels are there watching out and doing God's will, but at the same time, there's a warning to be on your guard, Esau. Be ready because something important um, and and precarious um, is still up in the air. Jacob should be concerned, by the way, right? Um, he's going to meet Esau, and the last time they saw each other, Esau had vowed to kill Jacob. And so Esau wanted him dead. And and again, Jacob doesn't know how this is going to turn out. And so in verse 3 it says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with, the, with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now, if we look backwards at the story 
to the character of Esau, uh, to the character of Jacob before, we might cynically think that Jacob is being sort of falsely deferential, right? That he's trying to butter up Esau, right? And he's using this language, uh, your servant Jacob, my Lord Esau, I'm just trying to find favor in your sight, right? If we're cynical, we may see this as all sort of putting on a front. But I think if we look forward in the story, I believe this is the first sign we see of repentance Forming in the heart of Jacob. Yes, it is out of fear. Okay, we can't deny that. But since then, um, since Jacob ran from Esau, a lot of stuff has happened to Jacob, right? That would have changed his perspective on these things. He's been mistreated in much the same way that he mistreated Esau. He's been swindled. Um, he has been on the losing end of man's deceptions. And I think he is coming to Esau in legitimate humility even if it's not quite a pure humility. And so the messengers go and tell this to Esau, but then they come back, and what they come back with is not encouraging at all. Verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking... If Esau comes against one camp and attacks it, then the other camp is left, who is left will escape. So notice something. We are supposed to feel the tension of this moment as, as readers of the story, right? Um, there is real danger. There is real crisis in this situation. Jacob doesn't know how this is going to turn out. We don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, we know that God is with Jacob. We know that God is, is, has, has called Jacob. He is the chosen one of God. God's going to keep his promises to Jacob. We've learned all that, but that doesn't still mean there might not be a cost, right? There could still be the case that Jacob has to suffer for the sins of his past. Something still might happen. And so Jacob's um, past actions may still have consequences, so he starts preparing for those things. And he says, you know what? I'm going to form into two camps. At least if half of my family and half of my stuff is, is killed and taken, perhaps God in his providence and blessing will allow the other side to leave and, and they will be the means by which um, he blesses. And then all of a sudden something happens that is not normal. It's normal for Jacob to make plans ahead and sort of go, I'm going to mitigate these circumstances and I'm going to place things in a way that I get out of this thing okay. But then he does something that is uncharacteristic of Jacob. And that is he prays. He prays for mercy. He prays for protection. And this time there's no bargaining like we've seen before. There's no conditionality to it. It's actually the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis uh, by anyone. And so in verse 9, Jacob says this, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me and the mothers with their children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. 
It's interesting because it's almost a model prayer, if you notice it. Like, if you break it down into its clauses, um, it looks like a model prayer that we would see throughout Scripture. There is an invocation there of calling on God. There is a confession of sin. There is a petition of asking God for something. There is confidence in God doing it, not because of any merit on Jacob's part, but because God is good and God has promised. And so he reminds God of those promises. He says, I'm not worthy of these things. God has done um, nothing but bless me already. I don't deserve anything. And I'm, I'm not making any deals, but I'm asking God for your mercy. I'm asking for your protection. And not just for me, but for my family and for my wives and for my children. Because I'm afraid. Again, if you've been paying attention, this doesn't sound like Jacob. That's just not how he acts. Something is happening in him. And I think it is repentance because humility is the root of repentance. And it always looks two ways when repentance starts taking place in our hearts. It always looks two ways. It is a humbleness towards man and it is a humbleness towards God, right? Both of those things always happen in true repentance. We begin to see our right standing among other people and we begin to see our right standing before God. The Beatitudes are a perfect picture of this, especially at the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, right? This is the beginning of what it looks like to have a repentant heart. Um, And that's exactly what we're seeing, I think, in Jacob. We hate repenting, okay? We hate repenting. Everybody hates repenting. We hate it because um, we hate admitting we're wrong. We hate it because it puts us in a place of weakness. We hate it because we, we feel weak when we have to repent. But here's the thing. Anytime repentance takes place, God is working. All right, God is doing something in our hearts. You see the gospel full of these stories. When you read the gospel accounts, when you see some character in the stories repenting, you know that God is doing something in that person's life. If, if the Bible says pride comes before a fall, then I would argue repentance comes before someone is lifted up. All right, and so that's exactly what we start to see. And so verse 13, so he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats and and 200 ewes and 20 rams and all these other animals. And then he instructs his workers in verse 17. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do these belong? Where Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your circum Jacob. And they are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. And then likewise, as they, Esau would continue to come forward, he would find another party. And they would say, these are presents for Esau. And Jacob's behind us. And they'd come to another party. And these are, are, are his stuff. Okay? Now again, cynically, we could look at this and say, man, he's just buttering him up. Okay? But I think there's a different picture there again. The picture is this. Think about the way Jacob swindled Esau. He incrementally, he took his birthright, he took his blessing, like he took it in chunks from Esau over an amount of time. And now he's paying it back in chunks, all right? First, this one group comes and he says, this is all yours now. And then another group comes and he says, this is all yours now too. And moreover, um, your servant Jacob is behind. Restitution is part of repentance, all right. Here's here's the deal. When we repent, it's one thing to recognize that we have done something wrong and feel sorry for it. That's important and necessary for repentance. But there is another step beyond that is the step to try to make things right, which is something we often don't do. Oftentimes we say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. My bad. 
Um, but then we let it sit. That's not what Jacob does. Jacob says, I have stolen and now I have a chance to give. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to repay what I have taken for my brother. And so again, I think we're seeing a picture of real repentance in Jacob's life. Verse 22. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. Okay, so what's, what's happening here? He sends, he's, there's, there's promised land over there, and the river is here, and he's over here in the not promised land, okay? He sends all of his family across the river, but he stays back. All right, he stays on this side. The Bible says he was left alone. Again, I think there's a picture that is being painted here that is critical for us to understand the very strange story that is about to come up right after this. Jacob sends everyone across the river, but he stays on the other side. No wives, no servants, no flocks, no children, no nothing. Jacob is left alone, empty. Everything he wants, everything he has been promised is on the other side of the river. Man, I love the songs that, that, that Cody picked tonight, right? Um, uh, on Jordan Story Bakes, I stand. Perfect song for this passage, right? J- that's, that's literally Jacob's story. He's standing there on the Jordan, the Jabbok, and he's looking over and he's saying, everything I've ever wanted is there. Everything God has ever promised me is there. But I'm standing on this side, alone, empty, Do you remember the Bethel story again? These things are bookends for what we're about to do. At Bethel, Jacob was a fugitive, right? He had nothing, and yet God met met him. Now Jacob is a great household, but his problem has always been his self-sufficiency. And so to accomplish his plans on his own has always been Jacob's way of doing things. Whatever means necessary, I'm going to get what I think I deserve. But now, the night before the most critical day of his life, he is alone, empty, isolated from all earthly help and all earthly protection. On this side of the river, when something weird happens. All right? Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. No explanation, just, and again, the person who's writing the story, um, who we assume is Moses, it, it, the story's progressing at a pace that he wants it to, right? He's, he's letting us in on information as we go. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. All right, so who is this man that Jacob is wrestling with? Well, we soon realize that this is no mere man, that this is God. That Jacob is wrestling with God. And this is not a spiritual, mental thing, right? Like sometimes we can spiritualize it and say, oh, this is a symbolic way of talking about what's going on in his heart. No. There was a guy there, all right? A man was there in his presence, and he wrestled with him. This is a theophany. We've used that word before. It is God um, visiting Jacob in a physical form, okay? The God who is spirit coming in some kind of of, of uh, physical, visible manner. Some people would even theorize that this is a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ, although that's kind of a jump for us to say that. But Jacob is actually wrestling with God. 
But the passage gets even stranger because what it says is, apparently, Jacob wins. Okay? Jacob wrestles with God, and God cannot prevail against Jacob. So what does that mean, right? Um, God is unable to overcome Jacob. Jacob will not relent. And so then the story says God touches Jacob's hip and throws it out of joint. All right, so here's something interesting that I read, and I wish, I wish Rob Brantner was here, um, because, because Rob's a wrestling coach. One thing that I read over the course of this, this studying for this sermon is talking about wrestling. Your hips are the center of your power in wrestling, right? They are the pivot of, of how you work and do everything, right? And so when your hip goes out in a wrestling match or you have bad hips, um, you're done, all right. One of my my favorite. I'm, I'm an Auburn fan, and and Bo Jackson is obviously one of the my my sports heroes of all my life. Bo Jackson's awesome career, greatest athlete of his generation. His career was ended completely by a hip injury. Right. He pulled his own hip out of socket because he was that boss, and um and he and he. And he never recovered from it, right? Um, the injury was so bad that he, he was, that it, it, it ended his career. That, that tells you something, right? There's a picture here. We learn something about Jacob and we learn something about our own hearts here. Jacob will not submit to God in this wrestling match. He will not quit. He will not get up, give up. But God loves him too much to let him go on in his resistance. And so, He humbles him. In his compassion to Jacob, he breaks him. God humbles Jacob because Jacob must learn that he has nothing else to count on except for God. He quite literally does not have a leg to stand on without God. This is the realization of saving faith. And that's why, again, I think this is a picture of the conversion of Jacob, his repenting of his sin and believing in God for salvation. You argue, you contend, you wrestle with God. We all have, and we all do in some way. But at the end of the day, we all have to be brought to a point where we let go of everything, right? We don't count on works. We don't count on merit. We don't count on our own strength. We don't count on family. We don't count on church. We don't count on religion. We don't count on any of that stuff. We fall in humility at God's feet. And God's love is seen in the fact that he will not hold that mercy, even if it can only be realized through his severity. Okay, Let me say that again, because that's a hard truth to understand, and it is a reality of life. God's love is seen in that he will not withhold his mercy, even if it can only be realized through his severity. Okay, Sometimes God has to be, sometimes he has to break us, to get us to where we need to be. This is an Old Testament story, I think, of a New Testament salvation. Jacob repents and is brought to trust in God and God alone. Okay? That is the decision that every single one of us has to make. Um, that, is the, that is the wrestling with God that every single one of us has to come to grips with in our lives. Is, will we repent 
And will we trust in God alone for our salvation? But here's an awesome thing, and it's a beautiful picture, man. I love it. It's, 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 honestly, this is the story. This is why we t- did this series, right? Like the reason we did this series was because of this passage. Everything else is just building up to it. This is the reason why I wanted to teach through the Jacob narrative. Jacob says in, in verse 26, it says, Then he said, so his hip is knocked out of socket. He is humbled. But then watch what happens. Jacob still is standing there, and he says, God says to Jacob, Let me go for the day... Has broken, meaning the sun's coming up. Man, I gotta, I gotta leave. We've been wrestling all night and you have been humbled and it's time for me to leave. But Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Alright? So, so Jacob is then humbled, um, in repentance and dependence, right? That's what faith is, after all. Um, it is a re- realization that we have nothing to stand on except for God. Jacob is brought low, but here's the key. Ready? Jacob is brought low, but he is not kept low. All right? Jacob is brought low, but he is not kept low. This is one of the great realizations of the gospel. It is beautiful and misunderstood by so many people out there in the world. And they reject the gospel because they don't get this next point. God is not a tyrant. All right? God is not a bully who when he wrestles with you and he doesn't get you to do what he wants, then he hurts you and leaves you there in the dirt. That God is not a tyrant. Tyrants demand humility too. Tyrants demand dependence too. And lots of people see God as a tyrant because he forces humility on us in a way, right? He brings us to a point of humility. But here's the deal. He doesn't leave you there. He doesn't leave us groveling in the dirt. Your humility is the beginning of your blessing. Your humility is the beginning of your ascendancy and your being lifted up. And so Jacob, I think, gets this, even though he doesn't understand why he gets it. He gets it because he has a new heart, because he's just become a truster in God in this passage, in my opinion. And he calls out to God and demands a blessing, not in arrogance, but in reliance on the good God of the gospel who gives blessings, right? He knows intuitively that this God is not against him, even though he's just humbled him. Even though he's just been crippled by God, God is not his enemy. God is the source of all good and blessing. And so he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. It is like my favorite story in all of the Bible. And again, that's probably the reason why I love this story so much. And I see so much of the scripture through the lens of it is the story of the thief on the cross. He recognizes his sin just like Jacob has. He recognizes he's deserving of suffering and death. He recognizes the innocence and the worthiness of of Jesus or God in this case. And then he says something, the thief on the cross. He says, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. How dare a dirty thief, career criminal ask that of the Messiah, right? Who are you to ask those things of God? You're nobody. You're nothing. And yet, because I believe the thief on the cross's heart was being changed in that moment, he knows that he can call out to God in blessing and for mercy and that God will answer. And so what does Jesus say? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, a humble heart met by the gospel doesn't crush us. We don't crumble at it. We don't crash at it. We are lifted up by it. We are rejuvenated by it and given hope in a future in a kingdom. 
Jacob does that, right? He says, I'm broken, I'm immobilized, I am brought low, I have no leg to stand on, but I will not let you go until you bless me. And then watch what happens. Verse 27. Oh, beautiful picture. Verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. My name is Jacob, which means usurper. My name is Grasper, swindler, liar, schemer, thief, coward, fugitive, doormat, slave, bad son, worse husband. That's my name. What does God say? Not anymore. And then he said to him, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You, Jacob, who is now Israel, have prevailed. You have wrestled with God. You have wrestled with men. But now at last you have come to the point that I intended for you and have been bringing you to all of your life. You are my chosen vessel. And now you have, you are the person that I have brought you to be. You're the person who I can use. You're the person who I can take across this river into the promised land to begin to receive and to work towards and to build on all of the things that I promised not only you, but your descendants and everybody in the future, all the way to Jesus Christ's coming and, and, to, and to the church. That's the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Man, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel before we even know what the gospel is. And then Jacob in verse 29, he asks, well, tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him, right? Jacob knows, I think, what has happened, even though he asks the question. And it's probably there just to make sure that we're not confused about what has happened. That we don't finish this story and go, well, that was weird. Some random person showed up and wrestled with Jacob. I don't know what that was about. No, the passage is there so that we know. Because in verse 30, what does it say? So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And man, if you could, that's the gospel, right? To be able to say, I have stood before the God of the universe who I should be judged by, who I should be crushed by, who I should be condemned by, and yet, because of His love and grace to me, in the person of Jesus Christ, I have been delivered. I have seen my God face to face, and yet I am alive, and He has accepted me and brought me into His fellowship. That is the gospel. And then I love the way this story ends. The sun rose upon Him as He passed Penuel, it's the same word, it's just two like different ways of saying it, Peniel and Penuel. The sun rose upon him as he passed, limping because of his hip. Man, there's, there's just so much beauty in this stuff. And, and, and just the little details. The sun was setting 
20 years earlier, earlier when he had left. Do you remember the story? It said as he came to Bethel, the sun started setting, and he didn't know where he was at, and he just had to hunker down in the middle of the wilderness, and he was afraid for his life, and he was, and he was, there was this danger there, and, and he didn't know what was going to happen, right? That's how that story of this journey began. And yet now what happens? As he, as he has stepped into this new place in, in the journey, as he's stepping across the Jordan, as he's going into the promised land, what happens? The sun is rising. He starts his journey at night in darkness. He ends it at daybreak. He left with nothing. He returns with flocks and families and servants. But guess what? None of that's really the main thing. He left with nothing and he comes back with nothing but God. And that's all he needs. And the cool thing is God has marked him by it. And I love this idea. God's humbling touch will be with him the rest of his life, right? And actually will be memorialized for the people of Israel throughout history. He limps as he walks. An encounter with God should make us limp, right? We should be crippled people in a sense, right? We should be people who are marked by the encounter that we've had with God in terms of humility, um, we should be people that when they look at us, they go, it is obvious that he has met Jesus because he walks with a limp. Um, he doesn't walk with swagger. He doesn't walk with a braggadocious kind of spirit. He walks with somebody who has been humbled and made to realize his actual place in the universe. And yet at the same time, he's a person who has been lifted up and walks with God in victory, but in a, a crippling victory, you could say. Um, and as the, the picture of the whole Christian life, is it not? It's certainly the picture of Jesus Christ, who comes and wins by being crushed. All right, He achieves what he came to do by going to the cross, being betrayed and attacked and ridiculed and murdered. That's the life that we have. That's the calling of the Christian life, is that we have this glorious inheritance, but it will come at the cost of our humility and being broken by the God of the universe. And so, man, I just want to close on this idea, and I hope um, you understand what I'm I'm telling you, okay? Um, You cannot be saved outside of the things that we have talked about today. Um, It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. It doesn't matter how many times you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how good a person you are. None of those things can save you. What has to happen is this. You have to recognize your emptiness and your need of a Savior. And then you have to put all of your confidence, all of your trust, all of your obedience, all of your love, all of your devotion, all of your focus on the God who can save you. And trust in nothing else but that. And if you will do that, the Bible says... You will be saved. If you believe in your heart, God um, raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If you do that, you can, you can know God and be one of his people. And he will lift you up. He will not leave you in the dirt. He will provide for you and protect you and do all these things that we've talked about throughout the rest of Jacob's story as, as God has watched over Jacob and provided and brought him to the place that he needs to be. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And so I pray this, that if there's anybody in this room who doesn't know that or has never received that message, right? If you've never turned from your sin 
and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that, that you would make that decision. That this would be the day that you would make that decision. That after service today, you would come down and talk to me and you'd say, you'd say I want to stake my life on the things that you talked about tonight. I want to stake my life on the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do for me. Let's go to the, time, go to the Lord in a time of prayer. And, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray to those ends. God, that, that, that you would, that everybody in this room would know that gospel. That they would believe that gospel. They would be changed and transformed and converted by that gospel. And that if there is anyone here who is not, that God would work on them. And listen to me, that if necessary, God would even humble them through his severity. That's a weird thing to ask, right? Feels weird to ask. But that we would rather see people humbled through God's severity than to spend eternity separated from him. All right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray that. And then I'll close this in prayer in just a second. Holy God, that you would do this, that you would change us, that you would work in our hearts to such an extent that we recognize our sins, that we would turn from them, and that we would turn to you in faith, that we would know that we have nothing but you, Lord, nothing but the perfect life and the perfect death and the perfect resurrection of Jesus Christ to hope in, that we would put all of our faith in that, God, and that we would be your people and that you would be our God. God, I pray for anybody in this room who is not there yet, who has not believed these things and has not known and and received and believed your gospel. God, that you would work in their hearts, that you would draw them. God, we pray gently. We pray that they would realize these things um, not in a moment of crisis, God, but in a moment of of, um, free choice. And yet at the same time, God, if it's necessary, we ask that you would humble them. We ask that you would bring them to this point by your power to show your mercy to them. God, help us to carry this message with us as we go. Help us to be witnesses of the glorious message of salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.